So if you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, we're going to be looking at verses 26-31. When Luke was writing the Gospel of Luke in in Acts 1-1, he was telling Theophilus that uh, the things that he wrote in, in his Gospel were the things that Christ began to do and to teach. And um, when he says began, it means that he continues to do those things now. It's just in a different body, and the body's called the body of Christ. He equips the saints through the work of the pastor, teachers, and, and uh, as we're growing and serving him, he is building his church. And uh, so God accomplishes his what he wants to do on this earth through his church, the things that Christ continues to do here with us. And we're going to consider uh, the church today, the church in Corinth. It's, uh, so let's read these verses. In verse 26, it says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were no, of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are, so that no human being, no flesh might boast in his presence. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, you became the wisdom of God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So our Lord uh, used the Apostle Paul to plant this church, uh, his Corinthian church, during Paul's second missionary journey. The church was planted, and Paul remained there in Corinth for 18 months, about a year and a half. And um, he had an intimate relationship with his church. In chapter 4 of the same book, he talks about the church has many, it even says 10,000, talking about a number of many teachers, many guides, many guardians, but only one father. And he says, I am your father. So he, he really loved this church. They were his children in the faith. We all have children in the faith. We love our children in the faith. And he had a relationship. But soon after Paul left, uh, Apollos came shortly after to, to assume the leadership in the church, but now it's been a couple years after Paul has left, and it's brought to his attention, as it says through Chloe's household in verses 11, and through some correspondence from the church, that there's various problems in the church of sin and, and, and other issues in the church. And 1 Corinthians was written by Paul to deal with these matters, to deal with these many problems. In the first nine verses, he gives an introduction of uh, of the letter, and he talks to the Corinthians, and he reminds them who they are. In verse 2, he says that the church of God that's in Corinth are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints, together with those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. She reminds them that they're saints. But then immediately in verse 10. So the first nine verses are an introduction. And in verse 10, 
He says, I appeal to you brothers by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So right away, in verse 10, he starts to appeal to them because he wants to address the issues. And all the way through, through this book to chapter 16, he is dealing with these many problems in the church. He addresses the problems that have been communicated to him. And the first problem that we see that Paul addresses and Paul deals with uh, is indicated in verse 10, and it's divisions in the church. Divisions in the church that result in quarreling among the brethren. And these divisions are caused by, uh, are caused by, for two reasons. First, the Corinthians, as Mike said, were elevating human wisdom. They were elevating worldly philosophies, or we could say public opinion, and trying to bring those things into the church. And that was a problem that the Corinthians always had. They always tried to bring stuff from their old life into the church or stuff from the world into the church. That's why in chapter 5 he says that a little leaven leavens a whole lump. He refers to the church as a lump and he's talking about the sexual immorality there. But they, they try to bring this stuff into the church. So the first reason was human wisdom, human philosophy, public opinion, bringing that into the church. The second reason of the division was because they were elevating certain leaders in the church and, and, and uh, forming groups among them. And we see these two things happening in the church of today. We see that they, especially, like I said, with Instagram uh, and all that stuff, bringing human ideas, human philosophies into the church and also exalting certain leaders in the church. And that's, that's not a good thing to do because it causes division. And this division is a very serious problem for Paul. Paul addresses it in the first four chapters of this book. So it's a very, very serious problem. And I believe it is fueled by all of the other issues that were happening in the church. But one thing became apparent to Paul as a result of these divisions that the fact that these divisions that the church had become very arrogant. Very arrogant. As a result of forming the factions, each group would, would compare itself to the other group, would pride themselves in their leaders over the other leaders. They would, they would esteem these leaders and then they would despise others, which is what they do a lot of times today. But this pride or this arrogance, has, it is apparent through the whole letter of first Corinthians Paul continuously tells them that they're puffed up he tells them that they're arrogant that they're conceited he says that they're proud in uh, chapter 13 verse 4 he he uh, when he's talking about love he, he he exhorts them and says love does not envy love does not boast it's not arrogant it's not rude and it doesn't insist on its own way so Paul is addressing them but they're proud they are proud and in their pride, in the context of chapter 1, they were bringing this human wisdom, their, their human philosophies into the church as if God needed it to, to, to fulfill his, the, the, his mission in the world, as if God needed human wisdom to save people. And, and Paul here makes it clear that God does not need human wisdom to save or to accomplish what he wants to accomplish through his church. And he says he does not save by wisdom. In, in, in verse uh, 21, he says, For since in the wisdom of God, 
the world did not know God through wisdom, and it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So he doesn't use it. And then in verse 19, he quotes Isaiah 29, 14. He said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, and I will thwart. God does not save by wisdom. God saves by power. The power of a simple message. The power of the cross. In verse 18, he says, of chapter 1, For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Verse 22 says, for the Jews demand us signs, Greeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. We preach the cross, a stumbling block for Jews and folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Of God. The cross of Christ to the Jews who wanted to see miracles, they wanted to see signs, was a stumbling block. And to the Greeks or the Gentiles, it was foolishness, it was folly. A dead Savior, they couldn't wrap their minds around that. But God tells them that the stumbling block for the Jews is the power of God and the foolishness. To the Greeks is the wisdom of God. And what we see here is that God saves through, through a message that seems foolish to the world, the message of the cross. And it's through the power of the cross of Christ, not through knowledge, not through wisdom, but the cross that is contrary to all human wisdom that Christ saves. Now, the question is, does God save by power and not by wisdom? Paul says, yes. And he goes, and let me prove it to you. And he starts in verse 26. Paul says that this is the way that you can know that God saves through power, not through wisdom. And what's he do? He points to the church. Paul says, look at yourselves. Consider your calling. Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Paul says if you want to see that God saves through power, not through wisdom, just look at yourselves. Look at the church. He says not many wise. Sophoi. These are the well-known Greek philosophers, the ones that he says the wise scribes and the debaters of this age that he's, he quotes and in, in, he talks about in verse 20. They'd be the equivalent today of the, uh, the professors of the Ivy League u- elite universities of today, trained in literature and philosophy. The ones that have counter-argument for every one of our arguments. It's called it's wisdom that, that, it, that is skillfully applied Raise your hand if anybody here is one of those whys that I just described. Not many. Word of God's true. Not many of these, as it states previously, they, re- they reject the gospel presentation. 
they consider it foolishness. Then he says, not many powerful. Okay, powerful. Um, other translations say, not many mighty. Dunatoi is the word. Same root as we get the word dynamite, but he's not talking about power in terms of physical power here. He's talking about it in the sense of influence socially or politically. Influential. These are the movers and the shakers. Uh, uh, the movers and the shakers, the things that make things happen by, with their money, with their influence, or with their authority over others. To get others to do what they want them to do. These are the politicians, the well-connected businessmen of today. And Paul's saying not many of these are in the Corinthian church. Now, raise your hand how many politicians, congressmen, senators. No? Oh, I thought I saw one hand going up. I was going to say, hey, I need a favor. No. <laughs> then he says not many noble. Noble means highborn. Highborn. It means uh, uh, well or highborn. It's one that's born into the best family, that's born into, into royalty. They're noble and they receive respect simply because of their name, simply because of the family that they were born into by their name or by their title. This could be in, in, in our day, like the Rockefellers, the Kennedys, the, the Vanderbilts, nobility, royalty. And Paul says, few of these are in the church. Another raise a hand, any royalty here? No. He said, not many wise, not many powerful, not many noble. But one thing important that he says here, it says, according to the flesh. This is important because it refers to the external, to appearance. Considered wise, powerful, and noble according to what man sees. Well, you ask anybody who they esteem in this world, and they're those that are wise, powerful, noble. Paul asks them to consider themselves as man sees them because he wants to make a point about their boasting, their pride. They're making divisions and they're boasting in their wisdom, in their leaders, in their own knowledge as if it gives them the right to boast and separate into factions in the church. They're forgetting where they came from and who they are. The truth is, the church of Corinth, they were the low in society. The reality is that the church at this time was filled with the low in society, the outcast in society. Historians say that it was made up of slaves, women, and children. And in this context, Paul's saying, you want to see proof that God saves through power? Consider yourselves. Paul saves through power with what is considered a foolish message. And he says, look at yourselves. Church, take a good look at yourself. An honest look at yourself. Paul says, if the cross was according to wisdom, then why did he call you? And the reality is that God's power and salvation is the power of the cross of Christ 
but it's demonstrated through the church of Christ. The church is the manifestation of the power in salvation. When you look at the church, you see this is, you see a variety of people. We see a variety of people here. Some are wise, some are powerful, some are noble. But for the most part, the church is, is made up of simple, not esteemed by the world. Not because they're not wise. Because we have the wisdom of God. And what it says about the wisdom of God is that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Is God weak? No. Is God unwise or foolish? No. But not because they're wise, not by their influence, not by their birth, but these, and the church is saved by the power of God and the power of the cross of Christ. It is through the, the, the church, his body, that God accomplishes his mission here on the earth. Saving power. This is what Paul's talking about. And he continues to demonstrate how in verse 27 and 28. Paul says that God chooses the things that are low to share the proud. But God chose the foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose that which is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in his presence. Paul says God chooses the things that are low to shame the proud. When? Well, we know that there's going to be a shaming in the end, on judgment day. When all is known and the church sees how foolish the things of this world really are, that's when he shames the proud that reject this message. But he's not talking about that here. The verb shame here is in the present tense, and it's in a continuous action. It indicates a continuous action, a continuous shaming. It includes the present as well as the future. So we ask, how does this happen? How does this happen? How does the foolish, the weak, the low, and despise, how do they shame the strong, the wise, and the powerful, I mean, and the noble. It said, in Christ, what the low have, or what those that are considered low, have in Christ exposes the emptiness of what the high and mighty possess. So it's, it's, it's what the low have in Christ that exposes the emptiness of what the high and the mighty have. It's, it's, it's that the wise men philosophically seek how to live a good life, how to live a moral, ethical, a life with meaning. So the wise are seeking how to live a life of meaning. And when they see in Christ an uneducated slave indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 
When they see that slave will live a life of virtue, of righteousness, of meaning that exceeds the wisest of the philosophers. And seeing that slave, the philosophers begin to see how little their knowledge really is worth. And what the slave has is immeasurable. Get where he's, where he's going with this? The influential. The influential seek power, money, and authority because they think that, that in those things you're going to find contentment. And they don't. But yet in Christ, the lowly slave with no power, no influence, possesses a joy and contentment in every circumstance that surpasses any joy money can buy. The more the influential strive to have more authority, more money, more influence, the less contentment they have. Where the powerless slave, like Paul has learned, to be content in whatever situation, whatever circumstance he finds himself in. Power and influence is exposed as what? Worthless. Worthless to their shame. And the noble, by their birth, have been given certain dignity to be respected by men. They dress themselves up, they decorate their fancy mansions, exotic automobiles, they drive in regal parades. And by their nobility, consider themselves worthy to be praised. Yet the lowly slave, who is of no status at all, demonstrates a dignity in his position in Christ that surpasses anything the noble possesses. Their nobility means what? Nothing. The truth is, should a famous philosopher, a Greek philosopher, whom the cross seems foolish to them, sit down and talk to an uneducated slave and understand that that slave possesses a righteousness that puts to shame the righteousness he pursues and that that slave has a joy that surpasses all joy gained through his power, through his influence, through his wisdom. And the quiet dignity of that slave as he humbly submits to others without any fear, the cross may look foolish to the world, but you can't deny its power to change lives. So all of a sudden, their wisdom, their influence, their nobility seems empty. And it makes them realize how little how, how little they really have, and it humbles them. Brothers and sisters, that's the power of the cross. Why? Because it prepares them to receive the message of the cross. If, if, if foolish receives everything that the wise seek, what does that say about the wisdom of the world? 
says it's empty, it's nothing, it's foolish. Paul says that God shames the wise because he uses the low in society to do it. And why does he do that? In verse 29 it says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. All flesh, so no flesh would boast in the presence of God. This means the humble, this, this, this means that all flesh will be humbled by the way God saves. All of us are. Because it blows us away. We can't understand it. We can't understand the power of this foolish message. And we're humbled. All flesh will be humbled. That includes the wise, the foolish, the powerful, the weak, the, the somebody, and the nobody. They are all humbled in Christ and before Christ. So God saves by power with a foolish message, and he demonstrates his power with what? A foolish people. Sorry, church, but he does. And why? Because it says it's all God. It's all God. And it prepares the proud to receive our gospel presentation. And the church shares the message. And what happens when it's rejected? What happens when we share the message, it's rejected, and we're viewed as foolish by the world? Well, some people hightail it and run. Not this church. What do we do? We study. We store up every counterpoint that we can to blow the world's wisdom out of the water. Right? If that's what you do, the world, you're thinking that the world comes to Christ by the cleverness of your presentation. We're playing into exactly what the world does. They think that they're saved by wisdom. We need to understand it's not us. It's not us. When we see the rejection of our message, it's not that we need to match the wisdom of the world and that we validate that it is a wisdom thing. It's not a wisdom thing. What do we do then? Brothers and sisters, we run. We hightail it to our upper room, to our quiet place, to our prayer closet, fall on our knees and pursue God more in our lives and let him work through us. Why? Because God's power is made perfect in what? In our weakness. In our weakness. When we live out, brothers and sisters, when we live out the wisdom that defies the understanding of the world, it proclaims the work of God in us and exposes the emptiness of the things that the world values. Most people focus on their doctrine. There's nothing wrong with that when they evangelize. Focus on their doctrine so much that they want to win the argument. And I say, but what happens to the soul? 
How do we demonstrate the power that, that the cross has the power to redeem men from sin into a joyful relationship with their creator? It's by the lives of the church. It's by the lives of Christians that demonstrate that redemption in a transformed life. It's your life, brothers and sisters. It's in the lives of Christians that demonstrate a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's in the lives of Christians that demonstrate power, that demonstrate joy in God that is contrary to their circumstances. How many times when you're going through trials and people say, I can't understand how you can be so at peace, smiling. And he said, let me tell you, Let me give you this message, this foolish message of the cross. True doctrine always is evidenced by the change it makes in the life of the believer. Because you could have all the doctrine in the world. You know what? The devil knows doctrine. They believe. They tremble. There's many Christians today that know doctrine back and forth And they don't even tremble. Because your doctrine means nothing if it is not witnessed by a transformed life that is fitting of that doctrine. Acts 1.8 says that we are witnesses. It says you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses. Problem is... By the lives of many believers, they don't believe your witness. Paul exhorts the Corinthians to the fact, to that fact in, in, in 1 Corinthians 13. In verse 1 and 2, he says, If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but not have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clinging symbol. And if, if I have prophetic powers and understand the mysteries of all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, and I have not love, what? I am nothing. I am nothing. It's empty without the life. Your walk matters much more than your talk when you're sharing the gospel. If you want to impact the world for Christ, focus on your walk first. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy, take heed to yourself and your doctrine. The Apostle Paul said to the elders at Ephesus, take heed to yourself and the whole flock of God that's in Ephesus. It's through your life that God's power and wisdom will be made known. That's what Paul's saying here. You want the world to be impacted by this foolish message of the cross? It's not about, it's it's not about wisdom. It's about God and what God has done in your life. Because God saved through this foolish message using a foolish people to demonstrate the power of the cross of Christ. In verse 30 and 31, it says, Because of him you are in Christ, 
who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The, this is a logical conclusion to what, he, what, what uh, Paul has already said in verses 26 through 29 and what effect it should have on them. He already said in verse 29 that no human being might boast in the presence of God. But it's clear that they're saved by the power of God. He says, look at you. Look at yourselves. Look at us. The power of the cross. Because of our humble origins. And because God uses them to shame the strong. It's obvious that you're saved by the power of God because look at yourselves. He uses them to shame the strong. It's because of you. He says, Paul says here, when he says, because of him, you, and the you is emphatic, because of him, you are in Christ. Because of who? Because of God, you are in Christ. Everybody here that's in Christ, it's because of God that you are in Christ. That they have believed in Christ by the power of God and how that power, the power of the cross, is manifested in their lives. He says, and because of him, you are in Christ and you have become wisdom of God. So we received wisdom at the time of salvation. Not wisdom of the world, but the wisdom that is the power of God. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says that every way, talking about the Corinthians, you were, when they received salvation, they were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among them, and that you are not lacking any gift. They were gifted, they were given knowledge, supreme knowledge of God, wisdom of God. So he says here that because of him, he is our wisdom from God. And he also says he is our righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. Righteousness will receive, that we receive from Christ at the point of salvation. As it says in uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 521, for our sake he has made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christians in Christ have the righteousness not found outside of Christ. That righteousness that the philosophers are looking for. It's the righteousness of Christ that is in us as believers. Says Christ is our sanctification. This is the changed life that happens in the believers as a result of salvation. 1 Corinthians 1 2, he says, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Sanctification. What the powerful seek. God provides at salvation. 
Christ is our redemption. This is slave terminology. It talks about deliverance from the bondage of sin. Salvation, in salvation, believers are, res, are released from being slaves of sin. And to be obedient children of God who are co-heirs of God's blessing. The church may be the low in society, like here in Corinth, but in Christ, in Christ, listen to this, in Christ we have become adopted children of the God of the universe. Let that sink in. In Christ, I am an adopted child of the God of the universe. Makes me want to be proud, no? That's a nobility that greatly exceeds anything, anything the world has to offer. And Paul's saying, it's God's doing. It's by the power of the cross that you receive these things. Simple, foolish message that is communicated to the world by a simple, foolish people. And Paul reminds them of these things so that, verse 31, so that is written, let the one who boasts, and we do boast, boast in the Lord. And some people say, well, boasting is proud. No. Boasting is only pride when you boast in yourself. What boasting is, it's a joyful confidence. A joyful confidence. And we have a joyful confidence in God rather than our flesh. All these things that Paul finishes telling us are true so that in reflecting in how God can use us, we run to God and we boast in God. In Christ, God is exposing the emptiness of the world. In reality, the emptiness of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, James says they're passing away. But what we have, brothers and sisters, is eternal in Christ. It's not wisdom that saves. It's God. With a foolish message, the power of the cross. We are saved and equipped to be witnesses of this power. Now the question to you guys today is, that power witnessed in your life. Since you have been saved, you've been equipped to be, to shame the wise, to shame the influential, to shame the noble. How does that carry out in your life today? Because we do have to be ready to, to answer unbelievers' questions, no doubt. And we do need to let them know that they are under the wrath of God. We do. But our goal is not only to prove the unbeliever wrong, but our goal is to beg them, beg them to be reconciled to God. Paul says that it is by his doing we are in Christ. The only way we can see Christ is because God has opened our eyes. And when we recognize this, 
And when we go and share the gospel, and the gospel's rejected, we don't despise the person that rejects it. You know what we say? But by the grace of God, there go I. If it wasn't for the grace of God, that's me. Although the world rejects the cross as foolishness, the cross that we preach as foolishness, brothers and sisters, they can't deny its power. They can't deny the love and the joy worked out in the lives of you guys, the church. It's that testimony that demonstrates the power of God. It's that testimony that demonstrates the power of the cross and the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. And Paul continues in chapter two, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you Two things, the person of Jesus Christ and the work he did on the cross, him crucified. Two things, that's my message is what Paul says. And it's through that message that God uses his church to save the world. Not so we boast in ourselves because we boast in God. Because it's a God Wow. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the message and the power of the cross. We thank you, Lord, that uh, those three hours, Lord, of darkness, as the Father was dumping his wrath on Christ, that you did that out of love for us. And the power, Lord, exhibited by the message of the cross, Lord, in the lives of your church, nobody can deny. And we pray, Lord, as we leave this place today, that, Father, we can leave with a new mindset. As Paul says in Colossians 3, that we don't have our eyes on the things of this earth. But that we have our eyes, our minds, and our things set on the things above. Father, we thank you for your word. We rejoice in it because we know, Lord, that uh, it is not us but it's the power of your Holy Spirit in us that enables us to be bold witnesses of that message. And we pray, Lord, that our witness would be effective and it would be believed by a world that so badly needs you. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.